This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Okay, it's good to see all of you here today. Uh, and I hope you're excited about today's passage because it's a very exciting passage. So let's go to God to ask Him for His help to understand what He's written to us in His Word. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for your word and that you have not been silent, but that you've spoken to us clearly about Jesus Christ. And we pray that you help us to understand it this afternoon. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now the world is full of warnings, right? Even though we live in a relatively uh, safe society, everywhere we turn there are warnings. So, you know, you walk outside Charlton Lane and actually now it's not the mosquito season so much, but recently, you know, you have all these banners, right? That if they, if they breed, you will bleed, right? And then, you know, all these things about red, yellow, green, telling you about whether you have a dengue infested area. Or if you go into the car parks, or, you know, you just go into, uh, I guess, a multi-story car parks, so your HDB, you know, it always tells you to be careful about crime, right? Where it says low crime does not mean no crime. Or if you even go to the hawker centers or the pubs, you see signs telling you not to drink and drive. And on cigarette packs at every 7-Eleven, you'll see signs telling you about how smoking is bad for you. Now, warnings are not bad things. Warnings are good things. Because warnings are a way of telling you that something bad is going to happen unless you take decisive and clear action. That's why warnings are actually a good thing. Like you don't resent the warnings, you should actually give thanks for the warnings. Because it gives you a chance to react before something bad actually does happen to you. Now, I think that today's passage really is a big warning. Over the last two weeks, we've looked at chapter 1 and chapter 2 of the book of Matthew. And chapter 1 and chapter 2 tell us a lot about Jesus. If you notice, Jesus hasn't actually spoken. He hasn't actually done any actions. But we've learned so much about Jesus, and mostly we've learned that he is a unique person in history. Now, we saw in chapter 1 that his bloodline, his virgin birth in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, his childhood ticked all the boxes about the origin and birth and the childhood of Jesus, which fulfilled a whole list of promises and prophecies expected about God's Son and King coming to the world. Now, I don't know about you, but when I, before I became a Christian, I had some idea about Jesus Christ. I thought he was a real person. I thought that he might have done miracles. But I still didn't become a Christian. And actually, what made me, I guess, become a Christian, what pushed me over from doubt into belief was the fact that Jesus fulfilled prophecies. So I would look at the Bible with somebody and and I'll be reading the Bible and I realized that actually all these things that were spoken of of Jesus could not be coincidences. The fact that he was born of the line of David, born of the line of Abraham, the fact that he was given a virgin birth, the fact that he traveled out to Egypt, the fact that after he traveled out of Egypt, he went to Nazareth. All these things could not be coincidences because God had said, that his son and his king would be doing all these things. So in chapter 1 and 2, if the question is, who is Jesus? Then question chapter 3 really is about the question, why has he come? What is the point of Jesus coming into the world? Well, in verse 1 to 6, it tells us and introduces us to this character called John the Baptist. 
So in those days, it says there in verse 1, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who has spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now, we've already seen that Jesus is a very unique and special character. And part of his uniqueness, as we see here now, is that someone actually was sent before the coming of Jesus to prepare the way for him. Now, nowhere in the Bible do we see someone actually sent by God ahead to prepare the way for someone else. Usually, you have to be a very important person for someone else to be sent ahead of you to prepare the way for you. So I remember when Queen Elizabeth came in 1972. Okay, So this is Queen Elizabeth. She was much younger then. When she came to Singapore... Actually, Singaporeans prepared way, way in advance for her to come to Singapore. So they would, you know, they would make the streets very clean. They prepared a special flat in Topayo for her to visit, right? You know, it was everything was prepared every step of the way for her. And why was this? Because she was a very special person. So in 1953, when she was coronated, uh, they actually named. Queenstown, HDB, right? Queenstown after her for her coronation. That's how important she was. So in the same way, Jesus was really important because God sent someone ahead of Jesus to prepare the way for him. But God, more than that, 800 years ago, had prophesied through the prophet Isaiah that somebody would come to prepare the way for him, for God himself. And that's why this passage is quoted. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, the Lord God, make straight paths for him. See, I remember for the, when I was driving, uh, it's not very often that this happens in Singapore, but you know sometimes you're driving and all these Volvos, white Volvos with, uh, you know, these uh, police lights at the front, all these policemen on uh, motorcycles, they always come through, it's only happened to me like maybe four or five times in Singapore, they'll come through and they'll ask you to get out of the way, right, get out of the way and everybody pulls over to the side and then some VIP goes through, right, I think I think it's the American ambassador or, you know, some big shot, right, comes to Singapore, that's what they do, they move everybody out of the way and then the big shot will go through. Well, in a way, that's what John the Baptist is doing, he's preparing the way for God's Son to come into the world. But he doesn't prepare the way by having flashing lights and having a, a siren and asking people to move to the side, but rather he prepares the way by getting people to repent. To repent. Now this word repent is a very important word in the Bible. When we think of the word repent, we often think of repent as an action. So I repent of uh, okay, I remember my sister said to me once, I will repent of eating chocolate. Right? So, you know, people think of repentance in terms of an action, of an individual act. But actually, repentance is a, it's a, it's not a one-off word, it is a dynamic whole life word. Because repentance is all about turning your life in a U-turn. It's like you're driving one way and you decide to turn to go another way. And that's exactly what the word repentance is about. It's not about feeling sorry. It's not about, I'm I'm sad for something I did. It's about recognizing that the way I live is going the wrong direction 
making a U-turn and turning back another way. And what that means in the Bible usually is that you're living your life your way. And you need to turn around and live your life God's way. That's what the word repentance is in the Bible. In verse 5, it tells us that as John the Baptist, before he baptized people, it says, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, that means that as John the Baptist brought people to be baptized in the river, people were confessing their sins. Now, those two things are very intrinsically linked. Because I need to acknowledge and confess that I'm doing the wrong things before I can start repenting. If I don't even acknowledge that I'm going the wrong way or living the wrong way, I can't turn around. Right? It's like if, if, if I don't feel like I have anything to confess and I don't feel as if I'm doing anything wrong, what is there to repent? Well, that's why in this section it says here that before the repentance actually took place, part of it was confession of sins. Now, confession and repentance are very unpopular topics in our world today. I remember this Bible teacher from Norway was visiting Norway and he told me that it's very hard for people in Scandinavian countries to accept Jesus Christ. And part of the problem was it is very rude to tell somebody or to imply that what they have done is wrong. It's okay to say that what you do is different and what I do is different and we agree to be different but it's hard for people to say to somebody that they are wrong. And how much more that their whole life orientation, the whole lifestyle is wrong. But that's exactly what John the Baptist is doing here. He is telling people to confess that they are living the wrong way and to turn their life and orientate it to God. Now again, this is a very unpopular style of preaching in today's world. Because nowadays, people preach donut preaching. You know donuts? Crispy donuts, yeah, crispy cream, right? Very unhealthy for you. Right? And what happens is donut preaching is where there's a hole in my life. That's why it's a donut, right? There's a hole in my life and you need, you need Jesus to fill up that hole. Maybe, you know, I'm feeling very insecure. I'm not feeling very healthy. I'm not feeling very rich. I'm not feeling very fulfilled. Jesus will fill up that hole in your life and make you feel fulfilled or healthy or rich. But John the Baptist doesn't believe in that sort of preaching. He comes preaching confession and repentance. Now, what happens next is very surprising because there are a group of people who come to confess and to repent, but he rejects them. So in verse 7 it says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Now, it's very rude. Can you imagine if uh, somebody turned out at church, uh, maybe a few weeks later, and comes up to the pastor and says, Pastor, you know, I really want to get baptized. And the, pep- the pastor, instead of saying, Yes, yes, welcome, sign up, says to the guy, You brood of vipers, right? Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Now, why did John the Baptist react this way? Now, 
the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the somebodies of the day. They are not nobodies, right? He wasn't rejecting them because they were poor or they were outcasts or something. The Pharisees and the Sadducees represented the leaders and the elite of their day. The Pharisees were the religious elite, the religious leaders of their day. They were scrupulous in terms of religious things. They were very serious about the Bible. In fact, they added rules on top of the Bible. And they were seen to be like the church leaders of their day. The Sadducees belonged to the high priestly house. They were like the royal priestly families. And they were the political leaders of the day. So these were not nobodies that John the Baptist was talking to. These were the, the heavyweights of society. But Paul, sorry, uh, John the Baptist was very, very serious because they were not repenting. They were not repenting. You see, if you look very carefully at the language, he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So, you know, if you have an apple, it comes from an apple tree. If you get an orange, it comes from an orange tree. You get a durian, it comes from a, a durian tree. What he was saying was that the life of the Pharisees and the Sadducees was not producing the fruit of a repentant tree. So he was looking at them and saying that, look, you're just going through the motions. You're coming to be baptized, you're coming to confess, but I see you and you don't look serious to me. There's no fruit representative of a transformed life. There's no fruit that comes from the repentance tree. Now, part of the reason why he said that was, in verse 9, ultimately, they were not coming to John the Baptist on, and God on the basis of repentance and confession, but on the basis of their lineage, their bloodline, their heritage. They believed that because they were children of Abraham, God would save them no matter what. It's a bit like some people who believe that, oh, you know, just because my great-grandfather was a missionary or my, my father's an elder or something like that, that somehow I have a special relationship with God. I have an inside track with God. But what we see here is that, that God himself says to John the Baptist that God himself can raise up children from the very stones by the riverside in which they were being baptized. You see, they were not taking repentance seriously and they were not taking the warning seriously. It's a bit like someone who sees the sign, you know. Uh, so my, my, I'll tell you a true story about my grandfather. My grandfather was an amazingly healthy man. He died at 95. But the amazing thing was, when he was young, he was a heavy smoker. He smoked so much that he got lung cancer. And they had to cut out one quarter of his lung. And uh, after he recovered from lung cancer, he, he went back to smoking, but he didn't smoke cigarettes, he only smoked the pipe. Right? Now, my grandfather somehow lived to 95 anyway, so I'm not telling you, to, telling you the story so you can say, oh, you know, I can smoke because Andrew, Andrew's grandfather lived to 95. But it shows you that he didn't really take the warning very seriously. right? That smoking is actually really bad for you. It's the same thing like, I know some people who say, oh yeah, yeah, you know, drink driving is very bad, but I only just have a couple of glasses of, of wine. No, I don't really, I, I still know what I'm doing. That's exactly what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were doing. They were not taking their repentance seriously because they thought that no, even if they don't repent, 
properly, because they belong to the bloodline of Abraham, they can still be saved. But here is the big warning that John the Baptist gives. In verse 10, he says, The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the shaft with unquenchable fire. Now here is the heart and the center of chapter 3. See, the axe is a picture of what? It's not a spoon, right? And it's not a fork. It's, it's a destruction instrument. Right, you, you know? If someone to walk to church and come in with a golf club, you're like, okay, uh, no problem. Or come in with a badminton racket or come in with a hockey stick, that's fine. But imagine if someone came into, or, or, or the pastor came into the church with an axe. I mean, it would be like, Okay, maybe I should take the sermon a bit more seriously, right? But, but an axe is a very serious thing. An axe is an instrument of destruction. And usually when you use the axe, actually, you don't look like, uh, lumberjacks or, you know, beefy guys, except maybe Poon, right? So anyway, if you were to, if you were to cut down a tree, usually you cut in the middle of the tree, right? Because that's the way that no, people normally cut down the trees. But here, the axe is actually swinging into the root of the tree, right? Like, like, like that. And what it is, it's actually saying that, look, if you don't repent, if you don't get ready for the Son of God coming to the world, you are going to face destruction like an axe cutting down the root of your tree. Now, now once you cut off the root of the, of the tree, uh, next slide, and there's nothing left, the tree is completely dead. You can't replant the tree, it's gone. And that is the picture that, that the Bible is trying to show. If you do not produce good fruit, if you're not ready for the coming of God's Son, it is like the axe swinging into the root. And notice the word here, the words are very important. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down. Every meaning, doesn't matter whether you're a Pharisee, doesn't matter whether you're a Sadducee, doesn't matter whether you're born into David, doesn't matter whether you're born into Abraham, doesn't matter who you are, every tree, no matter, even if you're the Pope, right, and you don't repent, it doesn't save you because every tree must produce good fruit or will be cut down. Now, the first warning is a warning of the axe. Then the second warning is the warning of the fire. Because he goes on and builds it up. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And then later on in verse 12, it talks about this person coming later who has a winnowing fork in his hands who will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the shaft with unquenchable fire. Now, uh, obviously we're not farmers. We don't know what a winnowing, you know, stick is. You know, what, what are we talking about here? Well, in the olden days, um, 
you know, actually now we just buy bread from uh, the 7-Eleven or NTUC, right? But actually to make bread, you need wheat, okay? So, yeah, flour. So, but flour comes from wheat, right? Okay, so flour comes from wheat. So what happens is, uh, in the olden days, uh, people, I think they still do it in Africa, because if you Google it, there's still pictures of uh, people in Africa doing it. So they get these sticks, okay? And what happens is they cut down all the, with the sickle, they cut down all the grain. Okay, then they put it somewhere. Then they get the this stick and they throw it up into the air. So all the the grain is heavy and will fall down. But all the, the, the stalk and the shaft and everything is light and the wind blows it away. So you're left with the grain and you're left with the the shaft. Now, the shaft is useless to you. You can't do anything with it. You're not going to eat it. You only make the bread with the grain, right? So what do you do with the shaft? You burn it up. But here, John the Baptist uses it as a picture of a separation between those who are ready for Jesus and who repent and those who do not repent and are burnt up. Now, normally when you burn it up, this burns up very quickly. It's just like, you know, paper, right? You just, you know, paper is very fast to burn. You just, you just light it and then it catches and it, you know, it, uh, it just burns out. It reminds me of this story. Actually, it just occurred to me when I was young, I did something really stupid. <laughs> I was with my friend and he had a firecracker, right? But then, for some reason, my friend, don't know what, he pulled out the wire. So, we got a firecracker but no wire. So he said, why don't we use tissue paper for the, for the, for the lead, right? But of course, Tissue paper burns so quickly, right? So anyway, we blew it up and, and we were half, it gave us like one second notice before we could run away, right? So anyway, so the shaft is the same thing. It burns up really quickly. But here, the picture is one of unquenchable fire. Judgment, God's wrath is like that. It's a fire which is eternal, which never ever is put out. So therefore, the message is, that you must confess and repent. But, if that was all that John the Baptist was preaching, then he wouldn't be doing a very good job in terms of preparing the way for Jesus. Because, the main role of John the Baptist was to prepare for the coming of Jesus. So he says in verse 11, that look, I'm baptizing you with water, but that's not the end, right? Because there's one coming after me who is much more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. Now, if you think about it, one of the most lowly and demeaning things you can do is to, is to get someone to take off your shoes for you and to carry your shoes, right? I mean, in Singapore, I've never seen a maid, except for little kids, lah, right? I've never seen, can you imagine, have you ever seen an adult get their maid take off their shoes for them? Never, right? It's just something that doesn't feel right about it. I mean, you can get your domestic helper to wash the dishes, clean the floor, wipe the windows, but somehow asking them to take off your shoes is just seems to be crossing a certain line. And even in the ancient world, apparently uh, the the Jews could not ask uh, other Jewish people to to take off their shoes for them. Only slaves were supposed to take the shoes off and to carry them. But notice what John says. John says the, that the person coming after him is so powerful that he is not even worthy enough to do the most lowliest thing for, for this person to take off his shoes and to carry it. 
So that means that the person coming after John the Baptist is such a great and mighty person that John sees himself as way, way below him. Way, way below him that is even lower than a slave compared to who is coming. Now, part of the reason why John sees himself this way is because John only baptizes with water for repentance. But the person coming after, this Jesus person, he baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, this is a bit strange, right? And I'm sure that if you, you look at this passage, even as you flash it up here, it causes you to ask questions, don't you think? What sort of fire is Jesus going to be baptizing people in? Is he going to be baptizing people into judgment? Cannot be, right? I mean, how can Jesus come to baptize people to be judged? No, I don't think so. So actually, the Holy Spirit and fire, in a sense, are pictures of purification. Alright, so in uh, these Old Testament passages, next slide, in each one of them, it talks about how God promises to purify and to make sure that the, the impurities are taken away through fire. So it says, I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. In Zechariah it says, This third I will put into the fire and I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. And I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is our God. And again in Malachi, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites, refine them like gold and silver. And then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. You see, in the olden days, right? To get precious metal. So again, just like you don't know how we get bread, same thing with gold, right? It's like if you have gold, there's all these impurities within the gold. And what they do is they have to melt the gold and get rid of the impurities to get the final product. And that's what Jesus does when he comes. He takes away all the impurities from people. See, part of the problem is, even if I ask you to confess and repent, the problem is what about all the things that you've done wrong in the past? Who pays for that? It's still there, right? I mean, I said sorry, I repented. But I still haven't fixed the problem, right? Who pays for it? It's like a pastor friend of mine, he was complaining to me. He was at a traffic-like junction, right? Then he was complaining that the people walk cross very slowly. Then, when they finally finished crossing, he turned, but he didn't realize that the light had really turned red. So, the traffic light camera caught him, and he was very upset. So he went to the traffic LTA, he complained, he said, no, it's not fair, the people were crossing, and they took too long, now turn in the light. They said, well, sorry, you still have to pay for it, right? <laughs> At the end of the day, you still have to pay when you've done something wrong. But that's why you need Jesus. You can confess all you like, you can repent all you like, but without Jesus' purification, there will be no salvation. Now, what happens next is the last act of John the Baptist, because we don't really see him much as a central character after this. In verse 13, it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan where to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? 
Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now, it's very curious that Jesus comes to John to be baptized. And that's a, that's a reaction that John has, because what is the baptism of John? It's the baptism of repentance, right? But Jesus doesn't need to repent. Jesus doesn't need to confess, because he hasn't done anything wrong. He has lived a sinless life. So that's why John says, I should be baptized by you, not, not you by me. But Jesus says, look, let us, let us do it. Let us, let it be so now. It is proper for us to fulfill all righteousness. So what it means is that both John and both Jesus have to do the right thing. They have to fulfill the righteous, the righteous thing that God has prepared for them to do, which is for John to baptize Jesus and for Jesus to be baptized by John. Now, when Jesus is baptized, something happens which didn't happen to all the other thousands of people who were baptized. What happens to Jesus is, when he comes out of the water, heaven is opened, and a voice from heaven is audibly heard, This is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Now, this voice is not for the sake of Jesus. Because Jesus already knows he's God's Son, right? It's like, I don't go home and my dad says, this is my son, right? I already know I'm my, I already know I'm my dad's son, right? It's like, you only when you go to other people and then he says, this is my son. So in the same way, there is a supernatural inbreaking of heaven where God speaks to people to say, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Now, this is not, sorry, I'm well, to him I'm well pleased, right? Which is, you know, I, I, I approve of what he's doing. Now, this is very important because it is a divine endorsement of Jesus. You see, we already had chapter 1 and 2, which showed us that Jesus ticks all the boxes in terms of the Old Testament prophecy. We already have the forerunner, John the Baptist, pointing out that Jesus is the one who is coming. But now, we finally have an endorsement from heaven above. Alright, so it's a bit like, uh, if you look up this slide, if you ever like tea, right, you know, like there's a Twinings tea, and then the Twinings tea, there's always like, it says like, you know, by Her Majesty, you can't see it's by Her Majesty's thing, right? So it's almost like the, the Queen or the Royal Family says, you know, we drink this tea, this is a good tea, right? You, sh- you should drink this tea too. Well, I mean, not to trivialize it, but that's what God is saying, right? It's like, if you won't listen to the Old Testament, if you won't listen to John, then listen to the voice from heaven. Because Jesus has come to take people and save them from the axe and the fire. See, I began the sermon by saying that chapter 3 is all about a warning. And it is a warning. And it's a far greater warning than smoking, drink driving, crime, dengue, put together. It is a warning about judgment, eternal judgment and damnation. And the only way you can take action is to confess, to repent, and to prepare yourself for Jesus and accept the coming of Jesus. You know, um, 
One of the greatest natural tragedies that ever happened was uh, Hurricane Katrina in 2005. So here's a picture of it. So it happened in New Orleans. I don't know whether you all know about it. But a huge hurricane swept into New Orleans in 2005. Now, actually when you go to Google, if you go to Wikipedia, you'll know that there was five days warning before the hurricane came into New Orleans. Two days before the hurricane came into the city, uh, there was a voluntary uh, evacuation announced by the mayor of New Orleans. He told everybody, you have to get out. We're not going to force you, but you should get out because this is a very, very, very serious situation. If you stay here, bad things are going to happen. The day before, which was a Sunday, I think, Monday was when the hurricane struck, there was a mandatory evacuation. That means everybody was ordered to leave the city. And the police actually went around to force people to leave the city. But yet, people didn't take the warning seriously. Apparently, uh, people, you know, the, the New Orleans has a very famous street called Bourbon Street. Uh, it's called Bourbon Street because everybody parties and drinks there, right? Okay, well, I don't know why it's called Bourbon Street. Anyway, but on, on, people were still partying on Bourbon Street the night before the hurricane struck. And in the end, 10,000 people died and many more were injured. See, this was an incident where people did not take the warning seriously. And I think we can make the same mistake when we listen to Jesus Christ. John the Baptist is very clear. right? He's warning us of the axe at the root of the tree. Every tree that does not repent and prepare for judgment will be cut down. He warns of the eternal, unquenchable fire. And he points us to Jesus and his baptism. So I hope that as we hear the word of God, we will take very seriously uh, this warning that we actually get today. That whatever is happening in your life, whatever you think is a big problem in your life, is nothing compared to the warning of the axe and the unquenchable fire. So I hope that as you hear this passage today, you really repent, confess your sins, and always be turning to Jesus. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.